Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. I apologize for my voice. Uh, My dad and I were doing a men's retreat for another church, and right before that started, this happened. And so I kind of had to power through a weekend of talks at this men's retreat, and this morning as well. So I apologize if I sound a little raspy. God shows up to the prophet Jonah, who's a prophet in Israel, and says, go to that great city of Nineveh and preach against it. And Nineveh is the city in the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrian Empire at that time is this violent, brutal oppressive state. If you're into TV, think Negan and the saviors from The Walking Dead. Think about their brutality. Think about the coldness of Killmonger from Black Panther. These are, these are wicked people who destroyed and mutilated their enemies, and they are the enemy of God's people. And Jonah's to go with them, to go to them with a message of judgment saying, Turn from your wicked ways or your city will be overturned. This is a a Sodom and Gomorrah type destruction that's going to happen to this city of Nineveh. But instead of Jonah going, Jonah goes, I don't want to go there. And he runs. And he goes to Tarshish. You see on the map there, he's supposed to go from, from to B, but then he goes to A, Joppa, and he's heading to Tarshish, the complete opposite direction. But we know that the storm comes, God sends the storm. Even as Jonah is running, God runs him down in his mercy, and Jonah is thrown overboard and sinking to the bottom, and the whale, the big fish, comes and swallows him whole to keep him from drowning, and in the belly of that whale, Jonah cries out and says, I'm saved, praise God. He repents, he turns to God's presence, and today we will see what happens as he spit up on dry land and heads to Nineveh. And as we look at the message today, the title of the message is Message of Judgment, Message of Mercy. Let me pray, and then we will go and read Jonah 2.10 through 3.10. Father of mercy, we thank you for the message of the good news in Jesus Christ. And we pray that this morning as we look at this story in Jonah chapter 3, that we would see Jesus more clearly that we might behold your mercy more deeply and that we might live with more confidence as your people. Help us to be people who live out mercy, who love our enemies, and who represent the good news of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Jonah 2.10 through 3.3. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In 40 days Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. 
They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, he took off his royal robe, he put on sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. The word of God. God has gotten Jonah's attention, and literally and disgustingly, Jonah is vomited up onto the beach. And we're not quite sure where he ends up, but wherever he ends up on the beach, God gives him the same command that he gave in chapter 1, which is get up and go to Nineveh. Go to the great city of Nineveh. An extremely great city, the text says. Here's a couple maps of Nineveh. First you see where Nineveh was in ancient Assyria, and then you see an artist's rendition of what Nineveh might look like, and then an overhead view of the great city of Nineveh. Presently, the remains of Nineveh are located near Mosul in Iraq. But it was located at least 500 miles from the nation of Israel. And so when Jonah's told to go to, Nine- to go to Nineveh, we're told he's there. But it's really a month-long journey or more from him to get to the be- from the beach to the great city of Nineveh. But he does obey the message. He obeys the message that God gives him to bring the message to Nineveh. And in the Hebrew, that message that he proclaims is simply five words. It's just five words in the Hebrew language. In English, it's in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. That's the message he walks into the city and begins proclaiming. In this extremely great city, in this violent city, in one of the most oppressive empires in the ancient world, which makes me think I wonder what he saw as he walked through that city and said, in 40 days, this city will be demolished. It was a violent city, so I wonder if he saw violence occurring as he walked through the city. Which makes me wonder not just what he said, but how he said it. As he was there in the city of his enemies, did the things he saw in the streets give him a sense of righteous indignation? Like, did he say, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished with a little bit of a smirk on his face and a little bit of a hope that it would happen? Or did he say, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished with a tear in his eye? We don't know in this chapter of the story what his tone is, but we will have some assumptions by reading chapter 4. Jonah, who has just been exposed to the mercy of God and brought to repentance, is now told to go to Nineveh and proclaim that judgment's coming unless they repent. And here's an opportunity for this great evil city to receive the mercy of God. But we wonder how deep has the mercy of God really gone into Jonah's hearts, Jonah's heart? Has he comprehended the mercy for him in a way that makes him proclaim this message with a tear in his eye for others? 
He deeply hopes that they themselves will return. We don't know. But that's a wrestle for us, isn't it? It's a wrestle for us when we see our enemies, when we see injustice in the world. And it makes me wonder how we cry out about repentance in our world. Because part of justice is getting what's owed. And as we think about the Assyrian Empire and how brutal they were with the people around them, and what it would have been like for those people around them to be restored, there's part of us that understands the desire Jonah had for justice against these unjust people. But part of justice is not just restoration for those who have been oppressed. Part of justice is also wanting those who are truly evil to become truly human in their repentance. And I wonder if Jonah wanted destruction in Nineveh, or he really longed for the mercy of God to be shown and these evil people to repent and receive God's mercy. That's a wrestle in our own hearts that we'll see in Jonah's heart in chapter 4. But Jonah walks into the city with this message that is from God, from a God that the Ninevites do not know and do not worship, about an action in their culture that is just normal, violence, evil, brutality. And his message to them is simple, turn or be overturned. Again, we're talking about a Sodom and Gomorrah type destruction here of the city of Nineveh. And he gives them a time limit. The message from God is that they have 40 days to respond to this message. How do they respond? In verse 5, it simply says, then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. Jonah comes in with this message, you're about to be demolished if you do not turn. And they believe Jonah. They believe the message of God through Jonah. They believe God. But their belief isn't just an intellectual switch. There's actually action that happens in response to the message that's from God. It's not just a shift in thinking, it's a shift in living. It's not just rearranging the facts in their head, it's a rearrangement of their life based on what God will do. They proclaim a fast, they dress in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least, they humble themselves before the God of Jonah. The gospel message is an announcement, not necessarily about what God will do, about but about what God has done in Jesus Christ. It's that the judgment that we deserve for our sin has been placed on Jesus Christ on the cross. And believing that message is more than just knowing some facts. Receiving that message deep into our hearts brings salvation and forgiveness, cleansing and right standing reconciliation and restoration with God, but when you believe that message, it will bring a radical change in your life. It's not just an ascension to some facts. And that's a good reminder for us because some of us desperately want friends and coworkers and family to respond to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. But in that desire to see them respond to the gospel message, sometimes we can change the message or numb down the message and say things like, Jesus Christ will make your life better. But that's not necessarily the message of the gospel. 
Or we can tell them that believing in Jesus is just a tiny change in their thinking and leave out that it also includes a big change in how they live their life. And when we numb down what God is calling people to in the gospel, they may never truly come to the message of the gospel. We have to be careful that we don't mess up the message, that we numb down the message in a way that they don't really understand and that there's no action attached to their belief. I know many of us fear, and if we're honest about fearing that our loved ones and our friends and our family never come to know the Lord Jesus, that's a desire and a longing that we have because we desperately want to see our people come to know the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. But sometimes I I find this in my own heart. We're afraid to admit to ourselves that our our people, our friends and our family, have never really responded to the message because we don't see the fruit of belief in their life. They say they believe, but there's no change in the way they live. There's no change in their actions. And yet we continue to pretend that they believe, which really allows them to stay in a place of unbelief. Someone who believes responds with their life. They believe the message of bad news about sin and judgment, but then they trust Jesus Christ for salvation. And through Jesus Christ, their life radically changes by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we see here. The Ninevites believe, and their belief is coupled with action. They respond by changing the way they live. They humble themselves. They fast. They put on sackcloth as a way of saying, we have been going the wrong way. Our actions have offended God. We need to turn and repent. We're on the wrong path, and we need to switch paths. We need to turn to another path. And that is part of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And so we can't change the message, and we can't dumb down the message, and we, we can't just say believe these facts without really seeing life change. But here's the good thing. Once you hold on to that, you don't have to lose hope. You don't have to lose hope that your loved ones will never come to know the Lord. And here's the reason why. You yourself repented of your sins. When God found you, you were a mess. You were separated from him, living your own life, doing your own thing. Yet by by God's grace and mercy, he brought you to a place where you say, I believe in Jesus and I want him to change my life. And if God can do that with you, then he can do that with anybody. He can do that with anybody. In fact, God uses a five-word message to change a whole city. Five words. Five words and Nineveh repents. Because God is at work. See, God is always preparing people for the message of the gospel. And even in this, Tim Keller, in his research, said that at this time in Assyria, there was a series of things that had happened. In Assyria, there had been famines and plagues. There had been revolts and eclipses, which might have gotten people's attention and open up the possibility that they would listen to a prophet from another God who was coming into their city. It's possible God had prepared them. And it's possible that those people in your life, God is preparing them as well. The hard things or the challenges that they're going through might be God's way of getting their attention. As you come to them and bring the message of the gospel, the message to believe in Jesus and repent. Because repentance is a work of God in our hearts. 
2 Timothy 2 says this way. Paul's writing and he talks about people who don't believe. And he's saying perhaps God will grant them repentance leading them to knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. In other words, God is involved when people repent. And so as we see our friends and family who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, the response isn't to numb down the message or to hide Jesus, but to keep the message as it is. The bad news of judgment and the good news of God's mercy in Christ, knowing that when we present that to them, God can work and bring in their hearts a deep longing to turn to him. But that's his work, not ours. We hope you're inspired by God's word. What have you learned so far? As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's word. The whole city in Nineveh repents from the greatest to the least. That's a way of saying all classes of people. Like the people who are on the top of society and the people who are on the bottom of society and everyone in between. And that's pretty interesting to think about in a city that was probably very violent. In a city where those with power might have oppressed those who didn't have power. And those who didn't have power might have struck back and revolted or did crimes against other people. And here we see an entire city of violent people repenting. Saying we've got to change our ways. In a kill or be killed culture, in an entire city repents even the king, the king who is high up, right? There's no one on his level. But what's interesting is this message hits the king so hard that he steps down low. He steps off his throne. He takes off his robe. He lowers himself by putting on sackcloths just like everybody else in the city and sitting in ashes because he himself sees the evil in his city from God's perspective and recognizes that God is offended and he himself humbles himself and mourns by becoming like everybody else. But he doesn't stop there. He issues a decree. He sees that everyone is fasting in his city and he says, let's make this official. Everyone is going to fast. We're going to be sorry for the evil that we have committed and we're going to call out earnestly to God and repent Because Jonah's message is that God is going to judge. God is going to judge. God is going to judge. Let's talk about God's judgment for a minute. It's interesting, we feel some kind of way about God's judgment. People often ask, why doesn't God do something to stop evil, but His answer to evil in this passage is his judgment. Here he does. He says, in your evil or I will in you, Ninevites. He judges evil. And we're all confused about this. I mean, there's so many different ways that we get confused. First of all, we think that God of the Old Testament was a God of judgment and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. And therefore we say judgment is the opposite of love. And God's different in the Old Testament. But really, here's the thing. God is the same in the Old Testament, and he's the same in the New Testament. He's always a God of judgment, and he's always a God of love. And that's the reason for that is love is not opposite of judgment. 
Love is not the opposite of judgment. I don't know if you've ever had an experience where you've seen an act of violence go down in front of you. I had an experience about eight years ago where I was sitting in a car in a parking lot and across the street I saw someone being brutal with someone who was much smaller and much weaker than them. And at that moment, I had to make a judgment. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but it can be a tense moment where you're trying to decide what to do. You're trying to figure out what's going on, and you have to make a judgment. Either this is right or it is wrong. Now, if you were to render a judgment and run and stop that violence, you were to run and stop that larger person from hurting the the smaller person. Is that unloving? No. Rendering a judgment in that situation actually comes from the fact that you love the weaker person in that situation. Love is what motivates the judgment to step, step in and stop what's happening. But not even that. If you approach that situation and you have a sense of rage and anger in you, that comes from love as well. Because you see what's going down and you see violence and you say, this cannot be. See, judgment and love aren't opposites. The opposite of judgment is apathy. Tim Mackey says the opposite of judgment is apathy. And God is not apathetic. He's not apathetic about the violence that he sees in Nineveh. He's not about apathetic about the oppression that the Assyrians are bringing to the world. And he's not apathetic about the injustice that he sees in our world. In his love, he makes judgments. He makes judgments. Not just about those things, but rather about all things. Not just things out there that are evil, but also things in our lives that he says are not right. God is not apathetic about anything. He's not apathetic about the way that you and I spend our money. He's not apathetic about how we use our words. He's not apathetic about what we do with our sexuality. He's not apathetic about our self-righteous hearts or how we protect the weak or the hypocrisy we have when we're in positions of power. He's not apathetic about any of that. He's not apathetic about our honesty and our business dealings or even our work ethic for a boss. Because God is not an apathetic God. He's a God of love. And therefore, just as he makes judgments against what is happening in Nineveh, he makes judgments about all things. Because he's a God of love, and he's not apathetic about anything. He's not apathetic about you. He's not apathetic about how you live your life. Nor how every human lives their lives. And we often get confused because we think that love, like God's love, means that I get to do whatever I want to do. But I'll tell you, as a parent, I love my children and I do not let them do whatever they want to do. I make judgments about what they do because I love them and I have more perspective than they do and I'm not passive in parenting them. And God is not passive with you and he's not passive in this world But if this is hitting you correctly, you feel the tension. There's part of you that says, this is good, and part of you that says, this might not be good. Tim Mackey goes on to say this. If there is no God of judgment, 
the world is in trouble. If there is a God of judgment, I'm in trouble. If there is no God of judgment, then the world is in trouble. But if there is a God of judgment, then I am in trouble. God is deeply concerned with setting things right in a broken world. He is going to hold the world accountable for the ways that it has not followed him. But the thing is, he's going to hold you accountable for the ways that you have not followed him as well. God judges evil, and he's also the judge of what is evil. Let me say that again. God judges evil, but he's also the judge of what is evil. So he discerns what is good and what is wrong, what is profitable and what is evil. But let me slow down even a little bit more because some of you just heard something that I didn't say. What some of you just heard is pastors saying you're hopeless. Pastors saying I'm no good. Pastors saying I am worthless. And maybe you've heard that message before, and here as we talk about God's judgment, that's what you're hearing now. And as you've heard those messages before in your life about being worthless or not amounting to much, you've learned to say no to those messages because you know I'm valuable. And so you're tempted to not pay attention to a preacher who's talking about God's judgment because you feel like your self-esteem is being attacked. And if that's what you're hearing right now, let me parse it out for you. You're confusing shame with guilt. You're confusing shame with guilt, and they are not the same. Shame is there's something deeply wrong with me compared to everyone else, and I want to hide who I am, and I'll never amount to anything, and I'm the worst kind of human being. That's shame, and that's not what I'm talking about. To your shame, I say this, God created you in his image. God created you with honor and dignity. Every one of you with, with purpose and value, you are, have infinite worth because you were created in the image of God. But guilt is more than just feeling guilty. guilty guilt is about an action that violates a standard or command. And, and that guilt, that stepping over a line, that not following a command renders a judgment. And so we say no to shame because we're created in the image of God and we're valuable and worth, but we have to say, have we followed God's commands? Because not following God's command renders us guilty, which renders us under judgment. And we're often very clear about this for others, but confused about it for ourselves. See, if you see an act of violence going on, you don't run up to that person to confront them in their shame. The person who's being violent against another person, you don't go up and be like, uh, hey, you're a great person. You know, you, you're valuable, you're worthy, you're not hopeless, don't feel bad about hitting the other person, you have dignity. No, no, no we don't go for their shame, we go for their guilt. Stop that. What are you doing? You know you shouldn't hit another person. How could you? And what we're talking about today is guilt, not shame. And we often get shame and guilt confused for ourselves, although we're often clear about it when it goes towards someone else. And when we talk about God judging us, we're not talking about shame. We're talking about the guilt of our actions and because God loves, God judges, which renders us guilty. 
But in God's love, he doesn't just judge. In God's love, he also shows mercy. In God's love, he also shows mercy. In verses 7 through 9, the king issues the decree and everyone repents of their evil ways and their wrongdoing. And in verse 9, the king says, here we've repented. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. The king's like, we don't know who this God is. We know that he's going to bring judgment, but we don't know who he is, so we don't know if he's merciful, but maybe if we repent, he will withhold his mercy. They know that God is under no obligation to be merciful. And maybe if they repent enough, maybe if, they're, if they change their ways enough, God will show mercy to them, but they don't know because they don't know who God is. And in verse 10, we see that God sees their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God does relent from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. God relents and is merciful to these people who don't know him. But God relents and is merciful even more so to us through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. See, they didn't know the character of God. They didn't know if he was merciful, but we do. God is called the Father of mercies. They knew that God was under no obligation to offer mercy to them. And we know that God is under no obligation to show us mercy, and yet he has committed himself to do it. He has said, I will be merciful. And the people in Nineveh didn't know if they had repented enough in order to receive the mercy of God. But the good news for us is that while we were still sinners, God showed mercy to us by sending his son, not waiting till we turned to him, but sending his son when we were still in the midst of our sin. Because he's merciful. He's the father of mercies. And his message isn't five words, it's one. Jesus. The message of mercy to a broken, rebellious world that deserves judgment is one word. Jesus. Jesus is the mercy of God. And John 3, 16 and 17 says that God sent the Son because he loved this rebellious world. But the Son came in the world not to bring the judgment of God, but to take the judgment of God on himself for us. See, God is not apathetic about your actions, but he's not apathetic about you either. He deeply loves you. He wanted to send his son to die for you because he's the father of mercies. He didn't wait till he saw how the world would respond. He sent his son into a world that he knew would reject the son because of the mercy of God. He didn't wait for you to repent to send Jesus, but now he wants you to repent and receive Jesus because in Jesus is the mercy of God. Will God save us from the judgment we deserve? Yes! He has sent Christ to take the blow of wrath, to take the judgment that we deserve, and it's not something that we have to go Maybe God will relent. God has said, here's the cross. And in the cross, see the 
the judgment you deserved, and the mercy that is now yours. Christ takes the punishment and judgment we deserve, and there's no more wrath for you once you are in Jesus Christ. All of God's wrath against sin was poured out on Christ. And therefore, there is no more wrath for you if you are in Jesus Christ. Mercy is certain. Titus 3, Paul writes this. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not by the works of righteousness we had done, but according to his what? According to his mercy. Through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. When you see the cross of Jesus Christ, you see the mercy of God. Have you grasped onto the cross? What faith have you believed in what Jesus has done for you and given him your life? See, it, it, it's not about going down in the ashes, although it is about coming off the throne. But as you come off the throne, it's not to go down in the ashes, it's to go before the cross of Jesus. Jesus is the mercy Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. Download our app by searching New City HH in your app store. We'll see you next week.